0: Hello and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited about the second of our two-part conversation on exit strategies and the various options owners have for transferring or selling their business. Joining me again are Alex Miller, Nathan Perkins, and Matt Godwin from our FMI Capital Advisors Group to talk about the M&A, ESOP, and internal ownership transfer options. Alex is Managing Director and Co-Lead of our Contractors and Construction Services Group. He's planning to cover the third-party M&A option. Nathan Perkins is Managing Director of our ESOP practice. Nathan is advised on hundreds of ESOP deals worth billions in value over his 20-year career. Matt Godwin is Managing Director of our Ownership Transfer and Financial Advisory practice. He has over 20-plus years of experience in financial services and capital markets. In this episode, Alex, Matt, and Nathan talk about valuation and what drives enterprise value for each of the options. They talk about some of the pitfalls of each of the options, what's the process look like to get started, and what are some of the key success drivers in the first 100 days. Alex, Matt, Nathan, welcome back to the show. I'd love to just jump in. One of the questions that we get asked a lot is, what's my business worth? And I'd love to explore that from each of the three options that we've talked about so far. And Alex, why don't we start with you from your perspective through the M&A
1: lens what drives value yeah i mean and so it's, it's always hard for us to talk about valuation in in you know in broad terms in the engineering construction market right because there are a very wide range of, of valuation metrics within our industry an engineering firm is valued differently than a hard bid construction firm than a service and maintenance provider than you know i mean you kind of go through the spectrum and the value chain that exists within everything it takes from planning designing, building and maintaining infrastructure, right which is really what we're talking about in the spectrum here is we're comparing kind of like businesses what are the things that are going to drive value? I mean it's you know value in and of itself is is a conversation about risk and return, right meaning I can pay more for something that has less risk and I can pay more for something that has a higher growth trajectory or has a higher path to future earnings. So, you know, if you think about that as kind of a broad discussion about how do we kind of get to, you know, this kind of educational view of value, what are the things that reduce risk? Well, I mean, certainly the type of work that we do reduces risk. Hard bid construction is riskier than a maintenance agreement. Now, it's not to say that, you know, that's kind of how we sit within the valuation spectrums, but the type of work that we do has an impact on how we're valued. But if we look internally on the business, development of people has a huge impact on that risk profile right it is a much less risky asset if i know that there's a generation team there's a generation of leaders in place who are capable and ready to sustain this operation going forward the larger my organization is the more diverse my organization is the less risky that is and so that that will drive value within a discussion across all of these conversations in the construction side the ability to bid work and perform that work at that margin is a real indicator of, hey, I have my control over the operations of the business, right? If I, you know, if you go look at a construction firm whose past 20 projects, you know, have margins that are all over the place to get there, I feel a lot more comfortable with somebody who says, no, we bid work at X, we deliver it at Y consistently. And I know then as I'm stepping into this operation, I'm stepping into someone else's backlog. Hey, they bid to work at this and past practice says they're going to deliver it at that margin or higher than that margin consistently over and over again. The other thing that's, you know, is is important is kind of the systems and the processes that you have in place. And one of the things that that we always say is that we've seen a really high correlation in value to how quickly somebody closes their books, as an example. What that tells you is, is that we know how to manage risk. We know how to track what we're doing. If there's a problem on a project, we're going to identify it quickly, right? Those are the types of things that we talk about in terms of managing risk. On the reward side, there are certain end markets that certainly have a higher growth trajectory to them, where we see a lot of capital flooding into those markets, where we see buyers who are actively trying to say, we know that this is required. We know that spend is coming in these sectors We know that as a country, we're going to have to address deficiencies in our infrastructures in these pockets. And those are areas where if you are serving, you have a niche that is highly defined. You have a technical expertise of what you're doing. And you're serving an in-market that we know has a really strong growth trajectory to it because of the needs of our country. Those are areas where we're seeing a lot of capital flood in and where we're seeing a lot of increased valuations from where we would have seen them five to 10 years ago. Nathan, anything to add to that from, a, from an ESOP perspective with respect
0: to valuation?
2: ESOP valuation is a little bit different in that I think it's a more scientific approach where we're looking at really three different ways to value a company and three different methodologies. So number one, we're going to look at comparable public companies if we can find them. What are similar companies trading for in the public markets? And then we discount those for scale, right? So if you're running a you know, $100 million construction company, privately held company, you're not going to command the same valuation multiple as a big public company because you don't have the liquidity, you don't have the scale and probably don't have diversification in your customer base. So that's number one. I think we also look at representative transactions that have happened recently in the M&A markets, again, in your industry or as close as we can get. So if a similar company was bought at a, for example, a five multiple and you're in, a, again, a similar space, that's going to make a difference from the standpoint of determining what your value should be. And I think the last thing that's a little bit more unique to ESOPs that maybe you don't see so much in traditional MA transactions is the discounted cash flow analysis, where we're going to look at the future potential earnings power of the company, apply a risk ratio to that, and discount it back to the present, right? So typically that's done on a five year basis. What do the next five years look like from the standpoint of earnings potential? And then we'll discount them back to the present and figure out what that future standard cash flows is worth today. So in an ESOP, we're looking at those three metrics and trying to get to what's called fair market value, which oftentimes is relatively similar to an M&A transaction, but there's some big exceptions. Number one, an ESOP buyer does not have strategic premium. They don't need to be in your market, right? For example, uh, there's no, also no synergistic premium, right? Where there's opportunity to potentially save costs because there's cost efficiencies to acquiring a business when you already have some infrastructure in place. So we do often see values align with the big exceptions being when there's synergistic premium or strategic premium, where a company is willing to pay significantly more for one of those two factors because they really need or want the business more so than an ESOP trustee might care from the standpoint of some of those key points in valuation. So I would say that's how ESOPs are a little bit different. Thanks, Nathan. That's super helpful.
0: Matt, how about about you with respect to uh, the internal ownership uh, transfer option?
3: So the internal ownership option is quite different. I would say that starting out as a foundational point, it's very helpful to understand the fair market value of your business as a starting point. But if you're selling your business, then you're walking away from it. If you're selling it to an ESOP or to a third-party buyer, And you're not having access to the future earning streams of the business. And you're no longer at risk. Now, from an internal standpoint, if you're going to sell your company in specific transactions over a period of time, A, your buyers typically don't have a lot of money because they're your employees. Unless you're paying them a tremendous amount, they're not going to come to the doorstep with a lot of money to buy your shares. B, you're going to also benefit from the future earning streams of the business over time during that. So there's really a a number of different components of how value is going to be driven from an internal standpoint. You're ultimately going to be paid for the shares. You're also going to contribute or benefit from the compensation and distributions of the future earnings of the business while you're still an owner. And those are the components of value. But the reality is the higher that value of shares of stock trends towards fair market value, the harder it is to actually transact that business. So the way I talk, uh, we like to look at it is, you know, valuation is a balance from an internal standpoint of the value of the liquidity that you're trying to drive from an equity standpoint, how long you want the transition to take, and also how much growth capital does your business need. So looking at those in conjunction is very important. And one thing I would tell you is, you know, you will be using some level of profits of the profits of the business that you have to accelerate. To your new shareholder group to make this happen. So, you know, having a reasonable valuation, sharing profits is going to kind of pull back into that valuation analysis.
1: While you may be transacting at book value, when you look at total dollars, oftentimes we're going to exceed what we're going to do in in other scenarios. Now, again, that that's exactly you right. At, you remain at risk for a period of time, right? Yeah. And and so you're continuing to partner, and so. You know I think when when Matt sits down and, and I've you know been with him when he sits down with clients, you know, one of the things that he's always telling them is value is the wrong question to ask, right? The right question to ask is what's the total dollar amounts we want to get out? What's your time perspective, and what's the needs of the business? And we can solve you know, you put those three into a blender and you come out with a solution that makes sense. And it's not necessarily, well, I sold my business for X, it's I transitioned the ownership of my business over a period of time. And over that period of time, I pulled out X amount of dollars. But I also stood up a next generation who now takes on the risk of this business. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sitting up at night worried about it anymore. I extracted my value. And it's someone else's problem to think about now because I have the next stage of my life I'm going to.
3: That's right. And a lot of times a business owner will look at that and say, why sell my company for book? It's worth a lot more. But the reality is, when you look at that transactable value over time, that's where you're going to see total proceeds that come close to what you're going to get from a fair market value standpoint. Now, going back on that, if you do sell your company, if you've got the right generation that's ready to step in and you do sell it for, let's say, a seller note for a majority of the business, you can construct that closer to fair market value because you're selling those shares day one and you are basically being repaid. And the, the new owners are taking the distributions of the business to repay that note.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when whenever we have these kind of internal ownership conversations, owners always look at us and, and the first question is, okay, I look at this, but what I really see is, is that I'm buying myself out with my own money, right? That's, and I, I think, you know, Scott, when you had the conversation earlier, well, you know, what I always like to say is, you know, let's turn on your head. Well, you're always doing that. I mean, if, if you go sell your company to somebody else and they're paying you a purchase price, You're buying your stuff out with your own money also. It's just, that's future money going forward, right? Like you're giving up the earnings of the business that are yours in the future for that purchase price. You're giving that up to somebody else. And in ESOP, you're doing the same thing. I mean- in all of these transactions, what we're talking about is how do we transfer risk? How do we monetize the, the asset that we've created? At some point in time, you're not getting those earnings anymore. If you wanted to have those earnings forever, then you should own the business until you die. That's how you, you know, maximize the value of the business, assuming that it's profitable. But what we're solving for here is how do I get the value out so that I can transition cleanly in a business? You know, As we talk about the construction side of our market, that it's really hard to walk away from. Construction businesses... They're a hamster wheel. You have to continue to bid work. You have to get work. If you're not bidding work, then you're not going to keep going. And the more you bid work and the more you get work and the more your backlog grows or sustains, the more you have to keep it going again. And so, what we're really trying to do in these internal deals is structure something where someone else feels that economic drive to step into your risk position and solve for you to step out of that risk position while also making sure that your liquidity makes sense for you for the value you created in the business.
0: Nathan, would love to start with you with respect to the ESOP option and some of the pitfalls or the downsides that you typically see associated with this path.
2: Yeah. So I think the interesting thing about ESOPs is once again, we, t- we talked about the spectrum of options and where do ESOPs fit into the three categories we've been talking about of transaction options. So an ESOP, again, is about a three to five year time horizon to get fully uh, uh, exited from the business from a financial perspective. So that's probably your biggest pitfall is time, right? An ESOP is not a complete transfer of risk where an M&A transaction may be in most cases. So we typically talk about that three to five-year exit where you get maybe half your money up front and the rest comes in the, either in a sell note or a follow-on transaction. So you are transferring some risk, but you're not transferring all the risk. So that's probably the biggest one that we we, we talk to people about is that time horizon to fully exit. And then stepping down from their complexity is another big one. When you start to involve taxes and tax strategy and the regulatory environment, ESOPs are not simple transactions. I don't think they're dramatically more complicated than an M and A transaction because you still and an M and A transaction you still have lawyers and you have purchase agreements and you have indemnification and issues you have to to you have to address. But I think kind of living with an ESOP is potentially a little bit more complicated from the standpoint of what you have to do to maintain the transaction and live with it for the next five to 10 years, a little bit more complexity. And then I would say, kind of dovetailing from the risk perspective, an ESOP is a leveraged buyout, right? So most companies that go into an ESOP have a very low level of operating leverage, whether it be they have some equipment debt, or maybe they use their line of credit occasionally when they have a payroll need or a a timing issue in accounts receivable. So that's a sea change for a lot of organizations to go from a relatively unlevered position to a relatively highly levered position, which can increase the risk of the business from the standpoint of what happens if there is an economic event or loss of a major customer or major financial or operational change in the business where if you're unlevered and you have a kind of a more robust balance sheet, it's easier to weather the storm versus having a high leverage profile. It, it becomes a little bit more challenging to navigate a significant change in the operating environment. So that would be my last point is the, the risk of, of adding leverage to the equation.
0: Well, and and just to kind of add to that a little bit, I'd, I'd love your perspective, Nathan, just on the repurchase liability element to that as well. So as I think Alex or or maybe you shared earlier, just that, um, it works great as long as it's
2: growing, right? Right, right. That's the key point, as long as it's growing. Uh, so repurchase obligation is an important issue because at some point, we, we've talked about kind of the upsides of the benefit and everybody gets stock and, you know, everybody kind of wins in the, we, we we like to say the kind of the rising tide lifts all boats in an ESOP setting. But the big but is you can't sell your stock in a privately held company on the NASDAQ or the New York stock exchange, you can't push a button and just sell it. Right? So the company has to make a market for that stock and ultimately repurchase it from the employees when they ultimately exit due to a a qualifying event, retirement, disability, things of that nature. So the company has to make good on that promise to buy back the stock and create a liquidity event for the individual employees as well. So it does become an issue. Uh, I like to say in some ways, it's a self-correcting mechanism because the only way the company is going to have significant value is if, if it's number one, it's paid off its debts. And number two, it's performing. Right. So in an ESOP, you don't have to typically, once you've gotten to 100% S-corp ESOP, you don't have taxes, right, because you you eliminate most of the tax from the corporate equation. And number two, you don't have a privately held company where the owner is taking large distributions of the excess capital in the business every year. So there's a lot of excess cash to go around, right? So uh, I'm not gonna say it's not an issue because it absolutely is something that companies should plan for and address and think and think about and be mindful of. But ultimately, you know, again, we're as I touched on earlier, we're looking at about a seven to 10 year time horizon. There's plenty of time to plan and to think about it and to include it in the strategy as to how to operate the business post ESOP so that we don't run into a problem at some point in the future that's unforeseen.
0: And Matt, I know you and I have talked about this in the past. I'm curious as to your perspective on where you have a a business owner whose words and actions may not match one another, right? They say they're ready to take this step, but their actions may suggest otherwise. Love your perspective on that.
3: It certainly happens. uh, And it happens more often than you think. Look, it's it's your legacy. It's the business you're tied to. You're emotionally tied to it. it's, It's your baby in a lot of situations. And it's very hard to step away for anybody in any job in any role. So certainly as a majority business owner, that can certainly happen. The way to get around those situations is it comes down to some very difficult conversations at times. And you know, ultimately it has to be addressed head on. In a best case scenario, you've got an owner that is, has a consulting agreement or very defined roles in which they are operating and helping the business. So, the more clearly you define the roles between the next generation management and the Alcohol and management and what they're going to do specifically at different periods of time. I think, could be a mitigating factor. Ultimately, if the business is going to work and the objective of the owner is to keep the legacy going and ensure business continuity, then they're eventually going to have to step away. It's just a matter of how forcefully that needs to happen.
1: You know, One of our colleagues who's on our leadership consulting team, Michael Mangum, always says, if you don't have something that's pulling you away, then it's going to start feeling like you're getting pushed out right and i'm i'm stealing michael's phrase there but you know what he always says is, is that you know when you go down this process as an owner you, you got to find something that makes you feel like you're getting pulled out of the business right you're pulling yourself into something different and if you don't have that just definitionally you're going to start feeling like that next generation is pushing you out even though you're the one that asked for it it's a weird dynamic there but it's a, it's a, kind of a neat analogy to say you got to find that next thing that's giving you drive and passion and, and is making you excited. And, and it can't just be the business because you're asking somebody else to have that same drive and passion in the business that you've had. And you want them to have that, right? That's how this will work. Yeah, that's a great point. It goes back to that. What is it that's going to fill your bucket?
0: If this has been your life's work, something's got to replace that. Otherwise, the emptiness sets in. And that's what causes people typically to want to hang around till it's counterproductive. At this point, I would love to talk about just what's the first 100 days look like and how do you set it up for
1: success? You know, I, I think, Scott, I'm, I'm honestly probably more interested to hear from Matt and Nathan what the first 100 days look like, right? I mean, as we kind of think about these these three different options, the thing that's different about an acquisition or M&A as an option is, is that that first 100 days is... There's a counterparty to it, right? There's there's an external buyer that's there. And so, you know, when we have a conversation in the future about, you know, what are m a best practices and we kind of talk about from a buyer's perspective, that first 100 days is is really what is the buyer doing to make sure this is a successful acquisition for them? And there are things like integration and making sure that cultures are aligned, making sure we've got the right roles and responsibilities. I mean, there are best practices for those first 100 days. But, you know, since we're taking this podcast really from the perspective of a seller, right, a founder, an owner, a family member who's kind of going through that transaction, I'm interested from Matt and Nathan's perspective, that first hundred days and their options, because when you go through an ESOP or you go through the internal option, you, you hold your own destiny.
2: Yeah. So to Alex's point, an ESOP is, is a little bit different than a traditional M&A transaction, but it's got a lot of similarities, right? So the closing of an ESOP is an event. Right. We talked about earlier how maybe you don't get all of your cash up front, but you maybe you get half of it. Right. So there is a little bit of a celebration inflection point where now it's there's a sea change in the organization and a sea change for the owner. One of the things you talked about, Scott, is 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 communication. Right. So the first big thing we have to do is maybe take a week or two off, slow down a little bit and recover But don't lose sight of the fact that there is a lot of work left to do. Don't take too much time off, right? So oftentimes two weeks becomes a month and then a month becomes six months. And next thing you know, you've got a pile of work to do and nobody wants to do it, right? So thinking about the communication plan, how you're going to announce the ESOP, how you're going to communicate the, the strategy and how you're going to address your employee population and deal with communication issues going forward, I think is probably the biggest job, along with... Again, dealing with the new environment, you know, higher leverage, potentially a new relationship with new a new bank, working through the mandatory things that you have to do in order to continue to operate with this new environment that you're going to be living in post-transaction. That's great. Thanks, Nathan. Matt, how about with you? What about the internal
0: ownership transfer option?
3: So to me, day one is the day that you first communicate the plan to potential shareholders in the company. Okay. When you're going out to them and saying, this is the plan, we would like for you to be owners in the business. Here's how this works. A lot of times day one is your advisor, someone like an FMI saying, here's the model, here's the financial model, here's how things are going to work. Here's what our plan is for the future over the next X number of years. So there's a significant education portion that comes with that because in an M&A transaction and in a ESOP the resulting employees or shareholders don't really have a choice. They're, they're in that, and that, that's what they're presented with. In an internal transition, ultimately, as a new shareholder, you're making a choice to purchase those shares, which means you need to understand the financial reality of the business. And a lot of times people are in roles, whether they're PMs or senior PMs or chief operating officers, things of that nature, where they're not seeing the financials every day where they need to be involved in those financial discussions, view the financials, understand the business from that higher level, that higher enterprise level, as opposed to just the, the roles that they're in currently. So, And also understand the risk of the business. Look, if you're an owner of a construction business that's closely held, you have a risk component there. So understanding what that means. I mean, it could be just the business risk. It could be just the financial risk of the valuation of the shares or the amount of money that you're putting into the business. But really, the big risk comes in where there's a bonding capability there. Am I going to have to be on a personal guarantee? Or is it just the balance sheet of the business is going to be holistically covering the bonding? So there's a significant educational time frame there that takes a month or two for people to get up to speed on the business, make a decision and then you go through the transactional components of it, which would be in the first 100 days, you typically would exercise that first transaction of shares. And from there, you're building strategy. From there, you're building a cadence of operating meetings between the next gen and the select shareholders so that you've got a strategy vision, operating mentality, developing that ownership mentality over time to where you're building that for the future. So very much on the educational side, And having people understand what they're buying into
0: yeah thanks matt you know going back to communication right there's a whole communication element of just internally what's the communication but also externally what's the conversation you need to have with your key customers with your design partners with your other trade partners and figuring out how competitors might use the messaging against you
3: yeah so communication goes a lot of different ways it's communicating the value proposition to the new owners And making them understand this may take a little bit of pain in the short term, but over time, you're going to build value just like I did as a selling shareholder. Then you get into the other, like you mentioned, the third parties, communicating with your bonding company that this is what we're doing. Here's the next generation. Let's get comfortable with them and, and starting a process there to make sure that they're engaged. But just like you said, your others, your, your key owners, your key clients, introducing them so that they can start to build relationships outside of just you as a selling owner is critical.
0: Just in summary, if I go back to where we started the conversation, if, if I am an owner at this stage of my career and I'm contemplating you know, what my options are, What's the process to get started, to put one foot in front of the other and start to figure this out?
1: You know, what we always tell people is that it's impossible to make a decision without knowledge, right? And most owners, they know their business, they know their market, they know how to create a successful business because that's what they've done. They don't live in the world of M&A. They don't live in the world of ESOPs. They don't live in the world of ownership transfer. And so it's impossible to make a decision without good knowledge. What we always say is, is that the first place to start is, is you got to understand what is feasible, what is not, what is the the universe of possible before you can really make a decision. As I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, there is more MA activity in the ENC market than there's ever been before. And so there are owners who may think, Hey, you know, I've always been told that that, you know, my business is likely unsaleable or that I really need to be considering other options. And, and if we sit down, we may say very quickly, no, if you want to go down that path, that path is available to you. It's not to say you have to do it, but understanding, hey, do I have an asset that demands a value in the marketplace? Do I have a business that there are buyers that are looking for? If not, or or even if so, what are the other options that are available to me? And so You know, the first conversation that we typically have with with owners who are contemplating this is we sit down with them and say, look, based on your market, your business, the size, its operation, your organization, here are the possibilities that exist for you. And here are the implications of those. Right. Here is the time it may take on each of these paths. Here is the total dollars that you may earn. Here's how quickly you can transfer risk. And so first understanding what's the universe of possible, what are the options that I have available to me? And then the next conversation that we like to have with people is, what do you want to solve? How quickly do you need this transaction to take place? Do you have a personal dollar amount that you're solving for, right? Do you have a number in your head that's going to make it worthwhile to you? What are your objectives? Are you trying to make sure that the next generation has opportunities and that this business can continue to sustain going forward, either as an independent entity or as a subsidiary of someone else? So when we have a really thoughtful conversation with an owner to say, okay, what are you solving for? What are your objectives? And then what is feasible? we can then bridge together based on these two discussions, this is what makes the most sense.
2: Information is power in in, in any transaction, right? So being an informed seller is really important. And I think when you're, at least when you're looking at the two of the spectrum of options we've been talking about, an M&A transaction or an ESOP transaction, you're gonna have a professional buyer on the other side of the table, right? So being a professional seller, at least an informed seller, gives you a tremendous amount of control over the outcome and oftentimes leads to a better result.
0: Well, that's great. Well, that's probably a great bookend to the conversation. Again, I want to thank Alex, Matt, Nathan. Thank you, you for your time. Great conversation. Really appreciate your insights and, and expertise and spending some time here and look forward to future follow-up episodes where we might get into more detail about each of the options. So gentlemen, thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Please join me again next time for a conversation with Hugh Rice on why contractors fail, hands down and still our most downloaded and requested article and speech topic of all time. Originally conducted in conjunction with the Construction Industry Roundtable in 2007 and then updated again in 2016, this topic is highly relevant to all construction firms regardless of market cycle. As our former chairman, founder of our investment banking business, and co-author of the original version of this study, Hugh will join me to talk about some of the key takeaways and what leaders can do to build resiliency into their business models. And lastly, please remember to like or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode.